This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. Welcome to our follow-up podcast of our live event last month. We'd like to welcome back our guests, dancer, teacher, and healer, Johari Mayfield, and professors Sam Baron-Shankoff and Devin Zuber from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be back. Now, we all, a month ago, had a live event that was focused around the topic of interspirituality and coexisting and explored that through discussion and music and movement and spiritual practice. And now we're back again. You know, the, the world is changing so much every day. Every time we read the news, it's coming at such a speed. So one of the things that we wanted to ask is, given all the changes that have happened just in the last few weeks, how w- might you approach the way that you talk about your interspirituality if we were to have that live event today? Well, if anything, this is Devin talking here. As the velocity has increased to this deafening crescendo, I mean, every day is sort of another incredible moment with a lot of distressing things occurring, of course, Um, the uptick in the last two days of COVID-19 infections and just the further breakdown of our political processes. I found myself more and more in the garden, like sort of the grounding of being in a green space outside. Our plum tree is now coming to bear its Santa Rosa plums and just the, the, the stillness of getting my hands dirty in the soil as sort of a, a necessary counterbalance to the, the speed of all these many things which feel out of control. So getting in touch with the deep time of the planet through my hands and gardening as a spiritual practice is even more important than where, as it was four weeks ago when we did the Radical Love Live. Anyone else having a different approach now or, or an evolving approach as we go through these, these weeks and months? Can I jump in? Yes. Yes, Jahari. Okay. I think for me, it is more a seemable act and checking in on people, white, black, green, purple, whoever you are, how are you doing today? How can I help you? At the 14th Street Y, there are a lot of, it's a very intergenerational community. There are a lot of older people. So calling them up, how are you doing? You know, can I go help you grocery shop? You know, are there things that I can help you do? So for me, it's about how can I connect with other humans as an evolving spiritual practice? Like the other day, there was a, I was at Target and there was a woman, she needed to find the honey. I didn't know where the honey was. Oh, there's the honey. Which honey do you want? I want this honey. I took it down off the shelf and gave it to her. Uh-huh. It's, it's a simple task. But it's so important that we continue to do that for each other, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, no matter how old, what your race is, what your gender is, what your gender preference, whatever, help somebody. Esteemable acts more often. Yeah, it's amazing. The phone calls and reaching out. I don't necessarily think that I need something like that. But then when it does happen, yesterday I was in the middle of work and I got a call from one of the administrators at, at my church and called up and they said, we're just calling to check on you and see how you're doing. I didn't have anything specific, but there was something fulfilling about hearing that there was somebody out there that wanted to know if I had a spiritual need. Like even just that connection mm-hmm. was important. This is Sam. I'm still thinking about a lot of the same things (laughs) that I wanted to talk about on our show. Still thinking a lot about ways in which 
spirituality often gets portrayed as a sort of sanctuary or quietness or stillness away from all of the clamor and noise <laughs> of bodily, corporeal, political, social existence. And I still find that dangerous. And I think the reasons why that is a dangerous approach to spirituality is just as clear as it can possibly be right now. So that spiritual focus, spiritual attunement to the body that I was looking at in terms of Ta-Nehisi Coates and Martin Buber and, and other resources, uh, I'm still there. Um, I think something that I would add that I've been thinking a lot about has been like the need for spiritual imagination. I think that there's ways that it becomes so easy <laughs> to take for granted the so-called ways of nature, the ways that the world are. This is just politics. This is just what happens in a diverse society and so on. This is the way the police force functions. This is the way a city budget has to be. And I think that spirituality, interspirituality, really calls upon us to use a kind of imagination to break out of some of those rigid molds and to actually think really deeply and really seriously about what kind of world we want to live in and whether we're picturing that as a sort of process of making our world here and now in kind of bending it towards a redeemed world or whether we're thinking about that in the potential and capacity of every human individual if they're living in in harmony with their kind of deepest spiritual potential i think there's different ways that we can bring a kind of vocabulary to that interspirituality but i think that the the immediate reactions to the pandemic the immediate reactions to watching the murder of george floyd and so on is, are still there but they're also starting to give way more and more to like serious discussions about policy shifts cultural shifts and i think that takes an incredible degree of imagination and openness and thinking out of the box uh, that spirituality interspirituality can really nourish and foster Hey everybody, this is Mark. So I'm going to ask you a question uh, to each of you to follow along with where Sam just started off. Each of you spend time with people either in front of them as educators for you, Sam and Devin, Juhari, and your very visceral hands-on type of experience as well that you do with folks. When you look back on the last three weeks and the people you've been in touch with, how are they feeling? What are they saying to you? What are you hearing that since the conversation we had in late May and where we're at to this point, what's on the streets? Well, like you said, I'm very hands-on and very into my body and the experience of it. I went for a hike with friends. My friend Carmela celebrated her 40th birthday and she organized a hike, so we went hiking. I think for me, I've just started going outside more and I've started being with people more and listening more, trying to speak less and listen more and, you know, just be with people. A lot gets lost in translation without the ability to look, to be able to read facial expressions. I mean, because we can kind of see what we're doing and you can kind of see what I'm feeling if I make a face like this or make a face like this. But it's, it's not the same. It's not the same as if we're, when we're like in proximity with each other. So I know that we have to be distant. I get it. But 
the more that we have opportunity to, to be amongst each other, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Let me uh, tag on to that. So if you think about the people that you hold dear and you do spend this time with them, how do they feel? I think people are, it's mixed. Like when the George Floyd thing first happened, everybody was on top of me. Jahari, are you okay? Oh my God, black person. Everything is going wrong in the world. And I just, part of me was like, thank you. The part of me was a little bit resentful because if this stuff wasn't going on, would you have checked in on me? That's why I said it's important to check on people no matter what is going on. You know what I'm saying? Don't wait for a, a catastrophe in order to find out who a person is, what their needs are. I mean, so that that was the first thing. People were like on me. And then I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm angry and I'm fine. You know, thank you. So, yeah, it, it was mixed for me when it first started happening. And then... You know, Carmela had her pipe, and then we were able to talk. I was able to talk amongst people, white women, the Karen people. You know, I hate that, by the way, that, that term. And, you know, just got a chance to get to know individuals as they are, as opposed to being lumped into this category. And then last week, I jumped double dutch. I jumped double dutch with... Um, I saw I saw a video of yeah, you doing double dutch. Yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> Do you know Double Dutch does not work if there's a winner or a loser? You gotta listen to the rhythm of the ropes. You have to listen if, if we're going too fast or too slow. Game, there, there are no winners or losers. I jumped with someone who was white. We got into the ropes. It was a white turner and a black turner, a black jumper and a white jumper. We were jumping. It was like, oh my God, why can't we live like this in the world? And our listeners have to go to your Instagram and see that. It was, yeah. it was an awesome video. Like, like, oh my God, and I made a new friend. Interspirituality incarnate in the form of double dutch. That's Does it get better than that? I'm into That's awesome. it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, Devin, either one of you want to hop in on that question as well? What's going on uh, with the folks that you hold dear? What are they feeling in this last month? One thing that has surprised me and moved me almost to tears uh, has been the global dimensions of this turning, this zeitgeist that's unfolding. Before I moved to Berkeley, I lived for many years in Germany and worked in the German academic system. I uh, spent time in England too. And people I love and care about there still love America. And they're turning out and going to these protests in Berlin and at Trafalgar Square in London. And that has really given me hope that in spite of all that's happened over the last three, four years, there's still so much goodwill and care and love for what's going on in this country right now. And that lifts me up. That gives me, gives me hope. So it's, it's been lovely to see friends on the streets in Berlin from afar via the magic of social media. I, I took my kids to the local rally in Berkeley that happened, let's see, two weeks ago. And on the wings of the interspirituality conversation with all of you, it just struck me how fragile it is. We take it for granted, especially here in the Bay Area, of being able to march with a rabbi. And I saw colleagues from the GTU in the streets as well. And to have this with others marching together after the photo op at Lafayette Square in DC, where the Christian Bible is held up in, in a certain kind of way and weaponized, it made me think that this imagining with others for a better common good from a shared horizon of difference, as dark as I still get every day, with, especially now the COVID-19 upspike, I'm still buoyed by thinking about my friends who care enough to show up in public spaces for Black Lives Matter in Berlin. Yeah, I think there's a deep sense 
that people are having serious conversations right now. And it takes different roles. You know, when I'm with different family members or friends, whether I'm in a meeting of the Contra Costa County Racial Justice Coalition or a scholar circle with other Jewish studies intellectuals in the Berkeley area, those conversations end up looking different. And the particular feelings and thoughts that arise take different forms. But I'm finding just time and time again that there seems to be like this very pervasive sense of deep questioning. And there's like a sense of malleability right now to varying degrees. <laughs> but there's a feeling like the iron is hot right now in the sense that things can be transformed. And maybe there's something even about the intersection of the pandemic and the anger and pain over police violence and racism, like the intersection of all of these things creates this sense that we're living in like a plastic world that is both very fragile and also changeable. And that human action, like in the way, I, there's some way that I sense with the pandemic, we were steeped in this messaging that collective action, human action can actually resist against and reverse seemingly insurmountable problems. There is a virus going around the world and we can do things that can actually change the course of that virus. Yeah, we've been talking about the climate crisis like that forever. Like, you, did you know that we could do things to avoid an international disaster? But there's some way that that hasn't been able to really hit. And obviously, it's struggling to even make it hit in the context of the pandemic. But I think that in some ways, that and now combined with serious conversations about race and police, I'm just finding that there's different opinions, there's different perspectives among the different people I'm turning to. But one common thread is that there's a sense that this is a time to think very deeply and critically about what's going on in the world and what we ought to do about it and what we can do about it. What do you think about the notion that the divine is moving through this? I do believe that God is involved in, in all of this and God allows things to happen in order to root things out and or strengthen things that need to be strengthened. So for me in particular, I have issues around patience. So what has shown up for me in this whole situation around how the divine shows up, I will be presented with opportunities to be patient with other people and they are not pleasant. They are not pleasant at all. And so if we could take that onto a broader scale of things, for example, with um, Donald Trump, I hear his name a lot, and I, I try not to say anything disparaging about him or any of the people that believe the way he believes, but I do believe that if we are called to be loving and we are called to be kind, and it's only in situations where it is pleasant and comfortable and it becomes something that's conditional, hmm. that's something that I, I know for me, I, my chain has been yanked. Are you only loving and kind when loving and kindness comes at you? Or are you, when this situation comes, when intolerance comes at you, are you responding with intolerance with intolerance? What, what is that? No, it is not easy for me to, to pray for people who don't think that I either belong or even deserve to live, but I do. Because that's what, what God has called me to do. I'm going to bring AA in this. I had a sponsor 
told me this, well, when Jesus died, what did he do? He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. So I try, I'm not perfect. I try to remember that example. I know everyone is not a Christian, but I try to remember that example of remembering the divine when it is not convenient or easy or feels good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's to me how God is showing up. It's like, it's a test. Are you loving? Well, let me see. Let me throw this at you. Throw this intolerant person at you. Let's see how you respond. Wow. You know, and so that's why the mindfulness around the Black Lives Matter and, and other movements that are, are being born out of this, that there's some mindfulness also with the new understanding of what it means to live with other people who you don't agree with. That's beautiful, Jahari. R radical love embodied. I'm teaching a class in the fall that I'm calling Pandemic Theologies, even though I'm not a theologian, my background's cultural studies, literary history, but I've been really interested at how climate change and now COVID-19 are provoking this sort of renaissance of new theological thought around the theodicy. You know, how, how do we account for the bad stuff that happens if we believe in the innate goodness of the creator and their creation? What do we do with the problem of evil and mm -hmm. suffering? And uh, climate change has already sort of prompted a lot of wonderful reflections about this. You know, my own territory is the space of Christian theology, but I think COVID-19 sort of brings us again to the fore. This is a question of historical force or you know, teleology. Where, where, where do we locate this? That's the big question, the big problem. I see this moment of unloosening and the unknown that's unfolding that Sam has talked about in a way that the spirit of this moment reminds me a bit of the energy of Occupy, especially in the temporary autonomous zone in Seattle that's unfolded. It's reminded me of these other worlds that might be possible that are opening up. I think there's kind of like a cheap theodicy that's been a problem in Christian thought for a long time where there's been this naive progressivism. You know, a lot of my more middle of the road friends and family, they've loved to talk about that Martin Luther King quote that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I've I've seen this even used on Facebook. You're like, well, you know, maybe you're being a little too radical going out there with your kids to these, these protests. These things take time. And I think this kind of naive progressivism has been so eroded that it's become more and more untenable for the middle to hold a sense that the story of America is this sort of exceptional fulfillment of manifest destiny and, and self-making. The racist foundations have been exposed and a lot of people are finally opening up to some of these presumptions and having to rethink their kind of smugness about what it meant to be a progressive Christian. I should put that progressive word in, in scare quotes. So for, for any of the listeners, this uh, class on pandemic theodicy in the fall at the G2, it'll be online via Zoom. So anyone is welcome to join in for those conversations. I love this question of like, where is the divine in all of this? I think places where I feel that presence, where I sense that presence is um, Abraham Joshua Heschel spoke about divine pathos, that it's in, in some ways in contrast to that omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient God, you know, that puts theodicy in binds that Devin's referring to. Like Heschel really emphasized, you know, like if you look at the Hebrew Bible, like, that God, <laughs> that God changes, that God feels, and that pathos in the face of injustice and oppression, we are witnessing an eruption of anger 
and rage and compassion and sadness and love and where that is happening there's the divine there is there is divinity pulsing somewhere at the heart of that and part of why that's divine is not just some like aesthetic thing of when we feel these things we feel moved in some way but it's like no that stuff is divine because it commands that rage that fury that shock that compassion makes a claim on us and i loved what you said johari about that has to be unconditional and that's what makes it spiritual right it's it's the fact that even when it's not easy or not convenient to be nonetheless commanded and claimed to conduct ourselves in a certain way respond in a certain way that's spirituality in action as far as i'm concerned that is that is the voice of god and not necessarily in some booming anthropomorphic kind of way but like that's the divine voice that's calling sedek sedek terdof justice justice shall you pursue that is an unequivocal statement and i think that that sense of many more people than usual feeling commanded right now to do what is good to do what is in the spirit of truth regardless of precedent and regardless of convenience and this is important too i think and what what where the divine is in this regardless of whether it's going to work <laughs> right regardless of whether this is like somehow the expedient path or somehow the most pragmatic practical path towards this election or that fiscal policy moment that's happening in this county or that state or this country there's this oft quoted talmudic teaching that i love attributed to rabbi tarfon where he says that it's not your task to finish the work but that doesn't mean you can desist from it that's the voice of spirituality that that's the divine call it's to recognize what is good and what is true um and to be humbled by that and to have that actually loom larger than what's convenient what's easy what is the tried and true way we so easily slip from that kind of awareness and when we do that then i think sometimes god is less present in those places where we slip into a sort of realpolitik and try to think you know pragmatically and and cautiously but when we're attuned to that pathos to that fury that love and respond accordingly there is divinity there you know one story that i've heard tied closely with a black lives matter movement is the story of the good shepherd because there's the debate about why am i focusing just on one group when i really should be focusing on all of humanity and that story the point of it is the shepherd could have stayed in the the sheepfold and stayed safe and kept everybody safe there but one was lost and made the very impractical move of leaving the 99 sheep on their own to then go off and follow the one that really needed the help and there is something wildly impractical about that kind of love that's just so it's unthinking in its need to act on that love 
Yeah, and I even even as I heard what I just said, thinking about it afterwards while you were speaking, it's complicated terrain, right? Because it's not I'm not trying to glorify some sort of bracketing of rational thought and the intellect and thinking about what's going to be effective and so on. So it's not to say that that that's profane, but it is to say that maybe that is the place where we need to be working out and implementing with our reasons, with our minds, what we are compelled to do from a deeper divine moral place. Well said. You know, on the vein of Black Lives Matter, I read a quote yesterday that it's not a question of whether all lives matter. It's that no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. To have it reframed like that, I thought, wow, it kind of goes to what Kelly was just saying about going out after the one sheep. I thought, wow, what a way to shift that perspective. I think about people in my own um, world who are the ones who would say all lives matter. And I've always had a problem with that just because it oversimplifies the reality of it. And uh, this allows me to really see for what it is, you know, and that we do have to go out and all of us are connected existentially like this is a requirement of ours where at this point in our humanity where we have the opportunity to see our history what has been done and how we could be radically honest we're not going to fix it in our lifetime it's not going to happen in our lifetime but at least be radically honest this is the way it is right this is a human experience and from there at least when we start to acknowledge it we start talk about privilege and those things that need to go there and they're messy uncomfortable People don't want to do it, but yet we have to do it because this is the only way we're going to progress as humanity. We have some questions, Kelly. Do we want to cover some of those? One of them we've already covered, but another one, and we've sort of gotten into this, is that how divided we are as a country and as a culture and even as a world. And there are all these different fault lines that are political and religious and social and even geographic. In what ways... Do you see opportunities for spirituality to help us unite, or can it? It's hard to top Johari's beautiful sharing about love and action. <laughs> I, I'm going to take away some lessons for myself next time I communicate with my um, various extended family members who <laughs> have uh, very different beliefs about all the events that are unfolding. I think a lot about um, our climate change crisis and how do I teach into that this great problem that lies before us, especially I'm not in environmental sciences, I'm, I'm in the humanities. So what good is reading poetry or literature when it comes to the urgency of our, our planetary moment? But I think part of it has to do with coming back to the body and, and the physical spaces we inhabit and share and, and the sharing of the ground that we're on and embedding ourselves in the soil, maybe even in a very literal sort of way and finding the love there. Uh, I'm a father of kids, and one thing that COVID-19 helped bring out in a wonderful way, my youngest wanted to do a vegetable garden on our balcony. So just the, the shared experience of wonder at green life that grows and being close to that. She has a little journal she keeps every day where she documents the increased size of the cucumbers and the beans and just the, the sheer delight in that and, and her love for this this life that she is feeling, I think there's where we can find a place for love beyond the political. And that's not to abandon the political, but I, but I think sometimes we get boxed into this instrumentalizing of the energy of this moment. We want to channel and force it into, well, you know, you better vote in November, <laughs> but 
there's something much bigger afoot. And for me as an educator, part of this is, you know, how, how can I better teach this? How do you teach wonder and awe and reverence that, that you can share for the ground that we've been given? You know, that's an argument for the fact that maybe reading poetry is one of the most important things we could do right now. Right. I hope so. It helps me keep employed. Yeah. It helps me keep my job. <laughs> and that too. It's an interesting question that ways that we can, that spirituality can help us attain that kind of unity and togetherness. Mark, what you were just pointing out about some of the uh, problems in the sort of all lives matter pushback, I think actually highlights one of the important points about thinking about unity and spirituality is that we can't jump the gun, right? We can't like jump over reality in order to attain a kind of unity. We have to begin where we are to forge those connections, to actually build and expand and deepen a sense of human community. Like we got to start right here, <laughs> right here in these very real material economic, political, social, geographic, urban planning conditions that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And I think to just be able to have the clear sightedness and the capacity to listen, to be able to even start to appreciate where it is that we are, is the first step. And I think that if there's something spiritual in there, it is that capacity to listen and to see and to learn and to be humbled and to recognize that actually different human beings in this world right now have actually like in many cases different tasks. I as a white man growing up in this white supremacist patriarchal society, I have certain tasks that I need to do to, to further this spiritual project of human community and uniting. I have blind spots to unpack. I have power and privilege to be aware of and mm -hmm. to do that work. So I think the question of unity brings to in my mind this image in Midrash, in, in ancient rabbinic Jewish interpretations of the Torah, of the Hebrew Bible of the image of the broken tablets, that God gives Moses this set of tablets. Moses sees some idolatry that pisses him off and he breaks them. And then eventually is given a new set of clean whole tablets. But Midrash teaches us that in the Ark of the Covenant, the Israelites, even into the time of being in Jerusalem, keep the broken tablets with those whole tablets in, in the same arc. Mm -hmm. And I think that for us to be able to envision that wholeness, that unity, that cleanness, we have to really hold those shards and the fragmentation and the brokenness uh, where we are right now. And as soon as we try to neglect and ignore the brokenness and try to jump the gun and attain some kind of kumbaya universalist vision, we're going to do violence to the moment we're in right now. Wow. Okay, so I'm gonna take you guys back to me about 24 hours ago at the post office. I know it's, it's one of those minor things, but if you ever been to the post office on a, a 
regular day, you know, it can be challenging. But during a pandemic and Black Lives Matter, it becomes a whole another opportunity for me in terms of spirituality. Restraint of pen and tongue, because I was at the post office yesterday, standing on the line. Everybody was Black. So all of our lives are mattering at that point. And the line is moving slow, but it's moving. We get to the front of the line, and there is a woman who is writing things. Like, why the hell doesn't she write this stuff before she got to the guy? And then there's only one guy working. There's a woman sitting on the, on the table knocking, and she could hear the other people in the back laughing. <laughs> So why am I bringing up this story about spirituality in terms of a, a real day-to-day -day interaction with other humans who happen to be Black? I'm not of the all lives matter ideology. I am of the Black people are human and go through, go through shit like everybody else, use my language, and do things within the community and to each other that are not kind. And I, I need to make sure that it's understood, at least from my perspective, that yes, I want people to see me as a black female and a contribution to the world, and also not to put me on a pedestal. So just to go back to the post office situation, I could have fed into the whole yelling and why we only got one person working and da 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 da. You know, instead, I just sort of said, what can I do to be the bland ingredient in this? Do I have to get loud? Can I be quiet so we can have a sense of calm in here so that this line can start to move? You know, it's things like that. It's those day-to-day -day interactions and experiences with other people, black, white, whatever, where there is the challenge to either react or respond, you know, to me is where my spiritual samurai muscles will develop. Mm. I love that, the spirituality of accepting the everyday and being in it. Yes, and that we all go through it and not to, to, of course, look at Black Lives Matter as something that we need to look at. But I also want us to look at when this dies down, are we going to look at the disparities in terms of food deserts and food swamps and opportunities for people to buy affordable food? African-Americans having that because that is a segue into better health. You know, part of the reason why, in my understanding, in terms of why Black people are, are more affected by this is because that we have poor health. Part of having better health is getting proper nutrition. You know, and that's something for me mm -hmm. as a Black woman. I'm all about Black Lives Matter because I, I was at Lincoln Medical and Mental Health Center working with pre-diabetic children who were Black and Latino. Before all of it, before all of please forgive me, before it got cliche and popular to, to walk around with a t-shirt. Black Lives, yeah, my, it was mattering before all of this. I was at Rikers doing things with the female inmates. So for me, it's just, I want to get off of my judgmental slash self-righteous anger about the pageantry of all of what I'm seeing. And I want to see how it plays out when it comes down to, okay, I need to be able to buy a head of lettuce. Um, let's look at how Black history is being taught throughout the year, not just everywhere. Amen. And the integration of Black excellence in other areas outside of sports and outside of the arts. Those kinds of day-to-day -day integrations of Black lives into our subconscious. Seeing a Black face on a dollar or a quarter something so that we begin to see the, the subliminal cues around who owns wealth shift. 
So if you're looking at a, a dollar with a white face every day, what are you thinking? If I see a black face on something, if I'm getting these same cues day to day, eventually that's going to yield a certain kind of belief and a certain kind of action. Putting Harriet Tubman's face on a dollar, I don't know if that will do anything, but I know if I was seeing that every day, that could possibly have a shift in my consciousness around my life, it mattering, and how much I have to contribute mm. in terms of wealth and well-being in this world. So I know that was a long stretch from the post office. Could I, could I riff off of Jahari's comment there? That was great. Please, I love, please. I love the anecdote of the post office and, and modeling what that looks like. I think part of our, to go back to your question, Kelly, about divisiveness and the divides we find in the politic at large, it's all been amplified by social media. This moment is unfolding via these corporate framings from Silicon Valley that thrive on very quick emotional gut reactions to things. You, you've got your, what is it, four or five reactions you can do in Facebook to a post. And are you going to be mad? Are you going to like it? You're going to love it? You're going to hug it? Mm-hmm. And I, I love what Jahari said because I think, I think she's modeling something. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot around my climate change interest in teaching. I've been reading some Donna Haraway, the theorist, and she talks about how responsibility for her, it's responsibility for the planet, is responsibility. How do you respond? How do we cultivate the mindfulness or, or the, the space of reflection that thinks before acting? And you know, Jahari's great example of the post office is a beautiful example of what that looks like in, in practice. And I think to be a little more critical of, of the way this is framed through these venues that take away our response ability, because hitting a like or making an angry face on Facebook, th- that's not responsible always. And I think to keep these spaces open of listening that Sam talked about, the difficult conversations that have to happen, um, and, and holding our discomfort, especially if, like me, a white, tall, blonde-haired guy teaching at a university, you have to hold that, hold that space, live with the discomfort, and hopefully it will bring about more responsibility down the road. I want to keep building on this because I feel like we're getting to, like, this is the most important, like, we're hitting the ground here. So thinking about responsibility and and what Devin was saying there and thinking about, Johari, your point about, like, what happens after all the pageantry. (laughs) I think that there's ways that we've been, uh, certainly I've been speaking about spirituality here as, like, these powerful emotional moments. And I think that that's only like one dimension of it. And the other one is is about practice and commitment. And so when social media and fads and what's in fashion is no longer like blaring the calls to action at people throughout the world, when like the hashtags start to fade out a bit, that's in some ways where the real spiritual work kicks in, which is to continue to hear the call to action, to continue to act responsibly, to recognize that, again, like as ta Coates says, keep your eyes on the body. Intentions are nice, but keep your eyes on the body. And if those food deserts are still there, if social services are still absent, if healthcare is still denied, if police violence is continuing to suppress the very communities that are most in need of support and services, um, then like that is where the spiritual work kicks in. That's where 
that sense of hearing and seeing and heeding and going against the grain of the culture. Right now, it's one can talk about those issues and address those issues in some ways without going against the grain. At least I'm speaking as someone living in the Bay Area. So <laughs> I, I need to acknowledge that. In some ways, um, the test is, is weaker then in that case. So I just really want to like echo that essential element of what it means to continue to practice this when it becomes more risky, more lonely, but nonetheless needed and urgent. It's interesting how I've seen an interaction between theology and action and that in many of the conversations I have, the people that are most resistant to change, to this kind of creative imagination are the people who projected their theology to outside this world or what happens after death, as opposed to theologies that are much more building a kingdom in the present. And those fault lines are interesting and challenging people to say that even if you don't believe that your theology has an impact in the here and now, it does by your inaction or action. That's what I'm hearing here is that it's all this connection between spirituality and body and how you're walking, what it is that you believe. And to tag on that, I um, I was listening to what you just said, Sam, and you used the phrase call to action. You know, certainly that's an advertising phrase. Get somebody to respond. And that made me think, well, back to the original word that's somewhat precious and inside church is the call. What is your call or your calling? And I just think in what we've been doing here with Radical Love Live, I'm careful for us to use language that is too churchy and too precious like that. But I think I've just changed my mind based on our conversation because, no, the word call is a very important word. It says something. We have a call, regardless of what your spirituality is. Your call is to do something. And it tags right to what you just said, Kelly. We have many people who think about the afterlife and what is it like in this. No, it's here now. (laughs) This is your call deal with what we got here through our spirituality and how we practice it and how we see it. The other stuff will take care of itself, but let's do our work right here, right now. If I could also like Mark in our show last time, you brought up the question of hope and Kelly with what you just said about is your theology guiding your attention to this world right now, or is it guiding your attention to some beyond? So that's something that I feel like is worth naming in the context of thinking about spirituality and interspirituality and activism right now is to get pissed off and roll up your sleeves and like try to change things on the ground and to try to push and resist and rally and and revolutionize and to actually enact an uprising that is rooted in a sense of hope <laughs> like like this actually we can improve the world to project it all into some beyond is actually rooted in like a deep pessimism mm-hmm about what is possible here in this city where I live, in this country where I live, when so many things seem to indicate that there shouldn't be hope, right? That it it seems hopeless. But to actually try to like push the United States of America, for example, or whatever local county or cities we live in to actually radically change is a spirituality that does not give up. It wants to see, it wants to see the fruits born right here. I love that. That's so different than you know, the sort of pessimistic use of, uh, you know, the misuse of a scripture like the poor will always be with you or something like that. That, that if anything, should be a challenge. You know, let's, let's continue to try to, to work this machinery 
because we hope for something better. Thinking on what Sam just offered, for me, it, it means, I think Christianity for a long time has overemphasized transcendence at the expense of imminence. And how do we live in a world that's unfolding and becoming that we are part of the making of? And I think in a way to really live that out as if you believe it also helps undo the magic trick of, of the way that kind of what I would call bad theology becomes bad politics. We tend to think about the election in November is the afterlife, right? Post-Trump, it's all going to be great. You know, we could, if we could just get there, we'll suffer through. And then, and then you know, we, we come into the kingdom of heaven. But right now, what are we doing right now in our local ground that we live on? Can we live imminently where the, the world is, is constantly a process of becoming that we're part of? And that sounds very abstract, but I, I think there are ways to live into that as, as human beings and as citizens that could radically change the political. That's where I find hope, because this moment, certainly if it's anything, is one of imminence. We don't know what's going to happen. There's an indeterminacy around the social unrest and the spiritual energies that are coming out of this moment. And that's exciting. There, there's a, there's a, the unknown is hopeful for me for that reason. Okay, so I'm gonna jump in with another um, one of my examples. The toy section at Target. Yeah, I, I've been going to Target a lot. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I was there the other day and I was scanning the Barbie dolls. Do you know that there's Barbie with vitiligo now? Do you know that they're making Barbie in a wheelchair? Do you know that there's a Ken doll with a man bun who can be a barista? Mm. You know, so why am I bringing that up in terms of hope? Children, because I work with children, to see that the toy companies that the companies are seeing are wanting to create an object so that children can start to see images of people that are not perfect. So that when they go out into the world and they see someone in a wheelchair, they see someone whose skin color is not completely even, they see someone that's working in a, in a profession that you know, they may not see traditionally work in, there is a, a seed of tolerance being planted. I'm seeing it every time I go to the stores now and I see the advertising. I see a young girl with Down syndrome on an ad for, for clothing. Do y'all remember any of that growing up? For something to be championed, to see that there is now space, particularly for young people, to, to have a, an expanded view of what the human journey can be, for me, is where the hope is. I'm starting to feel That's where we need to be. That's fantastic. This has been a really fantastic conversation. And thank you all just for what you're doing in the world. I can tell that you all have so much heart for your students and the people that you touch. And just thank you for, for doing what you're doing. And, and please keep doing Thanks, it. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Mark. It's been, been lovely to be in conversation with everybody here. Likewise, it's been a pleasure and honor. Thank you. Yeah, gratitude to each of you. That was a great way to spend an hour. <laughs> indeed yeah great to see you all again stay healthy and well bye everyone thanks so much for listening to radical love live if you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more you can listen to our podcast archive including recordings of our live series on most major podcast platforms your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at radicallove.live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. 
As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Thank you.